God, um, you are a savior who embraces uh, sinners. You embrace us, God. You embrace these little ones and you embrace all of the adults and older ones, older kids in this room. You are a savior who holds out the 10,000 charms hidden in you for each and every circumstance of our lives. Uh, Your presence invitingly and warmly soothes and comforts us. You are the Savior who is always attuned to all of our various, the myriad of needs that we have. And so I pray that as the littles this morning discuss those, uh, such a Savior, that they would know that Jesus to be the Jesus of 10,000 charms, and that we too would know that. So we gather underneath your word, both of us this morning, that your word would soothe and comfort. Your word would incite us to transformation uh, in accordance with it. And uh, that you would comfort us in the gospel that you are a Jesus who is here inviting our wayward souls to rest. So be with us all this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Hear God's word this morning from uh, the book of Romans. I'm actually going to start, read verses 1 to 3. That's not on the screen. And then I'll read the rest of Romans 14. As for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know, and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in and of itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you no longer are walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. Romans 14 is about love and freedom. The threat to the Roman church is division. And so Paul rests his application of how we are to offer our bodies in view of the gift of God's mercy and grace. How we are to offer our bodies because of Jesus, the reality of the Jesus life, death, and resurrection. The reality of a Jesus who rectifies the problems of sin and death. How are we to respond to such good news? Well, we offer our bodies. And we offer our bodies in the midst of the temptation of disunity. 
This is practical advice for how the church should be the church. Christ, remember from last week, grabs hold of us, all of us, weak and strong, and invites us then to grab hold of one another around him. Today and next week, we'll do a slightly deeper dive on the weak and the strong. And today, we're going to discuss the weak. It was probably uh, the late 90s. I, uh, Danette and I showed up uh, in Houston at my brother-in-law's house. My sister-in-law asked if I wanted something to drink and pointed me to their well-stocked fridge. I opened the double doors, and there were Cokes and Diet Cokes, and Dr. Peppers, and lots of them. And then there was lots and lots of beer. My eyes, my Baptist eyes, bulged a little. The bulging eyes quickly then became a little head shake. I grabbed my Coke and shut the door. Later that night, behind closed doors of our bedroom, I said, man, there's a lot of beer in that fridge to Danette. I don't get it. Like, there's so many better things to drink, better for you, things that are, won't cause you to stumble if you drink them. Now, this wasn't the first time I shook my head in that way, by the way. There was a stretch in the 90s that I shook my head just a, a little bit every time I got into a car with one of my students who was listening to Tupac or Brittany or Nelly. I, I shook my head a little when one of my college students couldn't quite grasp the five points of Calvinism. I remember the first time I went to a more liturgically-minded church, and I looked at Danette and said, what was that? And I've shaken my head at a bunch of other services since. I've shaken my head at bumper stickers on cars, and probably now can shake my head about being against or too hell-bent about any of the things I just mentioned to you. I have undoubtedly had many heads also shaken back at me in my direction. I remember in 1993, I was driving to Dallas with some collegiate uh, fr uh, college friends to this Christian conference. My buddy Bobby and I were uh, taking turns driving, and as I looked in the rearview mirror, I couldn't help but see this one girl over and over again with mostly angry eyes and lots of sighs and head shakes. Eventually, those sighs and head shakes erupted. Can't you guys just drive the speed limit? You know God isn't pleased every time you can't drive 55. She was like this mini Lila Garrity sitting in my back seat. I was shocked. This wasn't the first, uh, the first time or the last time someone was offended by my driving. But certainly it was the first time someone claimed high moral grounds about speeding. There was lots and lots of head shaking. I'm a head shaker. There are a number of things that evade me shake my head, and chances are you have been a head shaker, and there are lots of things that can make you do the same. Now, all of these things we might label under the title Christian liberty. Christian liberty are the things that we can disagree about as Christians, things like drinking alcohol and who to vote for, things like smoking and Game of Thrones and Harry Potter and homeschooling and Santa Claus and Halloween and even tattoos. Things like food and days, like we talked about last week, what you eat, what you drink, what do you allow yourself and others to do on Sabbath or feast days. At the heart of these things, there is debate, positions, some who are more comfortable in their liberty and some who are less so. We have a term for where these debates start and end, namely our consciences. 
These things are not explicitly forbidden in the scripture, but for some of us, they are a hard pill to swallow because our consciences won't allow us to swallow it. And this is where the head shake comes in. We have to live with real people. And when our consciousness are seared or overly sensitive, we shake our heads, according to Paul, in disgust and judgment. Are you a head shaker? And if so, what do you do about it? This is a three-point sermon. The first point is the attitude of the weak. Paul lays it out in chapter 14, verse 1. As for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Like Paul starts out by saying, don't stage an intervention at every dinner party. Welcome the weak and by inference the strong. There is a point here that oftentimes the weak don't have dinner parties out of fear their consciences might be violated. And the strong like to have dinner parties to pick a fight, to have a discussion. But Paul says, welcome the weak. This introduces us to the question, who is the one who is weak? What kind of person does Paul have in mind? Well, we see in 3 and 5, and we talked a little bit about this last, last week, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. And verse 5, one person esteems one day as better than the other, while another esteems all days alike. Paul mentions two issues here, one regarding diet, the other regarding days. These were the issues of gospel-believing Christians in the Roman church, and they disagreed on them. Some of the believers refrained from eating the meal. Uh, This was almost certainly the Jewish Christians who were still keeping the kosher laws from the Old Testament. Others would eat non-kosher meat, like the Gentile Christians. And some believers observed certain religious days from the Old Testament, while others did not. This is the question of Christian liberty. What does the freedom of the gospel permit Christians to do? The weak are those Christians in the church who tend to promote non-essential cultural or theological issues or opinions as being critical for Christian maturity and Christian effectiveness. Let me repeat that. The weak are those in the church, Christians in the church, who tend to promote non-essential cultural or theological issues or opinions as being critical for Christian maturity and Christian effectiveness. Now, they may argue against, like I have in my life at different times, listening or watching or drinking certain things. They might argue for certain ways of schooling because they want to turn back the tide of culture. They might say drinking is something we shouldn't do because it can lead to drunkenness or addiction. They might say that playing sports or letting your kids play sports on uh, the Sabbath violates the importance of worship and rest. They might say certain shows permit a view of sex and sexuality that can sear our consciences. They might not be on social media because it makes them envious. They might be against having a gun in the home because they can't ever see a time when hurting another person would be allowed. They might not ever wear a two-piece or a Speedo. They might not even own a TV. At the heart, there are certain theological nuances that can be difficult to see or difficult to let in because of a fear of how it might lead them away from their devotion to the Lord. They have a piety that might be more clear, clearly on display, and thus their consciences are sensitive. 
The attitude of the weak, Paul writes in verses two and three, is that they can then in response to those attitudes shake their heads in judgment. The weak are not loving the strong when they condemn them in their hearts for practices or beliefs that are not actually out of accord with the Bible. Paul gives strong warnings in these verses about this. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. He will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. The scripture is saying that we have no right to denounce, condemn, or judge other believers who disagree with our scruples and our opinions. Now, for example, Paul writes in 14 and 21 of our passage today that drinking alcohol is not in itself sinful. There is no Bible text that forbids it to all, but a Christian may decide to abstain. In that case, it is sinful and and unloving to condemn or judge other Christians like I did towards my brother-in-law for drinking. When Paul says, who are you to pass judgment on another servant? He means that the brother or sister you are condemning is not your servant. He is Jesus's servant. So let Jesus decide whether that person is serving him properly or not. Now, even more significant is the fact that when, we, when the weak are judgmental of the strong, because of their particular scruples or opinions or views, they are forgetting the gospel. Remember the principle Welcome the one who is weak, but the weak must also welcome the strong. Why? Look at verse 14.3, the verse one, first verse, verses I read. God has welcomed him. Whatever a Christian's strength or weaknesses are in particular views or practices, from your vantage point, God has welcomed them and accepted them in Jesus Christ. So, if God accepts them, what right do you have, Paul says, to reject them? None. The gospel is what informs us as a community here. We are to be controlled by the knowledge that God accepts the other person and finds that other person with a beer in their hand to be lovely. Now, John Stott writes, the reason both the despising and the condemning of a fellow Christian are wrong is that God has accepted them. Indeed, the best way to determine what our attitude towards other people should be is to determine what is God's attitude toward them. Now listen to the Holy Spirit this morning. Is your attitude towards people determined by what God's attitude is towards them? Is it determined by the gift of the gospel? Is there an area where you are guilty of failing to do this, to have the same mind as Jesus had towards your brothers and your sisters? Maybe you have a particular take in this room, Presbyterians, on a theological issue, and you want to talk about it and convince others. And if someone is not convinced, the temptation is to just write them off. Come back to the gospel. Who are you to judge? God has welcomed that person. Maybe you feel that someone is too far, far too libertine with the way they dress or raise their kids or the way they use their money. And you find yourself in that moment responding to it with rudeness or head shaking. I can't believe them. Come back to the gospel, Paul says. Who are you to judge? God has welcomed that person. Pursue the third way of love. And Paul gives us some ways of how to do that. Look at this. Second point today is how should the weak love the strong? First, 
seek to gain understanding. The first way for weaker brothers or sisters to practice love, to rack up a debt of love, according to Paul, is to seek to grow in their maturity by going Uh, by understanding the scruples of your own conscience and the opinions and the teachings surrounding those topics. Now, hear me. Because some of you in this room, this describes you. You would be considered the weak. Your consciences are easily pricked by issues of the day. In that moment, the way that you can love the strong is by seeking to gain understanding. Paul does, after all, clearly state that the weak are simply wrong in principle. Notice that. He writes, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Now think about this. Remember what we talked about last week? We talked a lot about the context of the Roman church. The Gentiles now have assumed leadership. The Jews have returned from being ostracized. And now there's all different kinds of meat being offered at the social gatherings. And Paul is saying, those meats offered to idols, those meats, pork, certain kinds of fish, those meats are all, I am persuaded in Christ, clean, free to be eaten. Creation is good by God's design. We are not prohibited from eating foods and drinking drinks to God's glory. The principle applies to other issues as well. If your brother or sister is offending you due to a difference in preference or opinion, then seek understanding. Seek to learn about the viewpoint instead of being static in your positions and then acting judgmentally in those positions. Another way to put this is that you should develop your spiritual mind so that you can faithfully and accurately discern between open-handed and closed-handed issues. You must develop the ability to distinguish between what is a matter of opinion over which Christians can differ, and what is essential. Weaker brothers and sisters tend to believe that almost no issue is a matter of opinion and that everyone must thus agree. And this is the rub. The rub is making non-essentials essentials. And thus the injunction in verse 13, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. If your conscience grieves you when you indulge or watch something or skip church on a particular Sunday, then there is recognition that this is something I just can't do right now. I think that temporal point is important. But this can be and is often a matter of of opinion. It isn't clearly forbidden. For me, I can't get on Instagram, you might say. But for you, I know this isn't essential. Now, let me add this. I also think that not only do you not make non-essentials essentials, essentials, you also don't then become an evangelist for non-essentials. I think it's way too easy for us to become evangelists about our thing, our issue. This is why we are so quick to affix bumper stickers to cars and MacBooks and maybe make that thing on Facebook, our Facebook walls, like, you know, like uh, the little banners, And you put it up there. And when you see it, you shake your head at others that don't have the banner or someone shaking the head back at you because you do have such a banner. We become evangelists for these non-essential things. Now, I'm not saying all those things are insignificant, but often they can be non-essential and we can have strong opinions about them. And then we evangelize around those points. 
We are a people who are experts at turning non-essentials into essentials, and then by dying on those hills, by claiming our undying love through bumper stickers, t-shirts, and mugs. I was a part of the young, restless, reformed movement, and so so were some of you. And we quickly made some of the points of that movement to be essential, that the Bible or church history has held more open-handed. We are so quick to close the fist. Instead of grabbing hold of Jesus and neighbor, we tight-fist things and keep others out. The weak should gain understanding of their brother or sister who has a different point of view, whose consciences are less sensitive. Now, practically, here at City Press, one of the values of our church is that kind of diversity of thought and opinion. We, things we are comfortable with. You're going to be likely exposed to things here that you may not have practiced before, or unfamiliar, or might be uncomfortable but we are a theologically diverse and serious church. So the strong have to be loving and patient. We'll talk more about the strong next week and not destroy. But the weak should understand that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, joy, and the Holy Spirit. Next, if you are weak, you should be careful not to overly evangelize your views. Look at verse 22. The faith that you have... Keep between yourself and God. If you've thought through one of these issues and still have scruples and choose a certain path and you are fully convinced in your own mind, Paul says, don't make trouble over it. That's what this verse means. Paul is not saying that you cannot give your opinion if it's asked for or if you're having a conversation about things that are related. Paul is not saying that you can never make evaluations. Rather, Paul means that once we recognize that this is a disputable area and that there is a wide variety or even a binary variety of disagreement, we should then keep that in some sense to ourselves. You are welcome to have disagreements with other believers over secondary issues and certain cultural matters. What is not welcome is judgment and divisiveness. Lassoing those non-essentials into the realm of the essential, then passing out t-shirts and textbooks at the next church event, or what we're tempted to do is that you discover something in our church that makes you feel anxious. Because your conscience has been pricked by this thing at one time in the past or even in the present. And in your anxiety, you then find others who might share your anxiety and you gather those others around your issue to have your anxiety relieved. That certainly was happening in the church at Rome over food and diet and days. And Paul is saying that act can be divisive. And in those moments, to relieve your anxiety, what should you do? Not take it to the other brothers and sisters who may share your view over and against the rest of the community who does not. You should take that anxiety where? To the Lord. Casting all your cares upon him because he cares for you. Knowing that for your uh, walk with the Lord, this is something that you're Conscious is not allowing you to engage in, but others may have freedom to do so. And that anxiety that's created by that fact 
And it is a fact in churches, like we talked about last week, all churches have disagreement over non-essential things. You should be taking that to the Lord. And not just taking the Lord to pray for your brother that they might see the light on the non-essential issue the way you see the light. But praying for yourself and the way that you feel in your conscience that you might be faithful to God in the way that God has appointed you to be faithful. How many church fights, splits in history could have been avoided if more of us simply heeded this practice? It echoes what the Apostle James writes, let everyone be slow to speak, slow to anger, and quick to listen. This is a crucial way to the beauty and diversity in the midst of unity that Paul speaks about here. Third, weak brothers and sisters, don't violate your conscience. This is an important point here. Verse 14, uh, 14.5, each one of you should be fully convinced in his own mind as well. 13, 14, and 15. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on, any, on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother or a sister. I know I am persuaded the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love, but what you eat, by what, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Paul wants Roman believers to stop passing judgment but to rather judge this in the sense of determine or make up your own mind. If you're really into judging, judge to not put a stumbling block or obstacle in another brother or sister's way. Don't manufacture a disturbance towards another believer and and block uh, or impede their progress and growth in the faith. Paul says everyone should be convinced. Everyone should have scruples. We should be persuaded. Paul says, I know nothing is unclean in itself. He repeats this in verse 20. Everything is indeed clean. Paul is convinced. Jesus declared the same. And he operates in most settings under that conviction of conscience. But sometimes uh, there are complicated stories that just won't allow it. If it is unclean for that person, he says, it is unclean. And even if Paul's stance on this might bug us, right? Because it almost seems like he's talking out of both sides of his mouth. Paul says, all food is clean, but provides liberty to the weak to live their life according to conscience and custom when it comes to food and drink and days. Now note that strong. We're going to talk more about you next week. But note that there is liberty here for the weak to be weak. And friends, we need to reflect on our behavior and our views regarding these secondary issues and opinions. We need to determine whether the Bible really forbids these things, and then we need to determine if we will choose to abstain for other reasons. But not because we haven't thought it through and understood what the Bible teaches. We must ask, can I do this before Jesus? Can I do this to the glory of God? And finally, unless you're convinced something is right, hear this, Unless you are convinced something is right, you probably should avoid it. This is what Paul is saying when he says, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith and whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. If you are unsure of something, refrain. Don't violate your own conscience and sin against God because Paul says it isn't worth it. There have been many things that I've done in my life where I know it was allowed, permissible, but I shouldn't do it, but I did it anyway and sinned. 
Does that make sense? Like Paul is saying, don't violate your conscience. Now, this also works the other way. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. When, when Peter refuses to eat with the Gentiles, when he's around his fellow Jews, Paul confronts him to his face. Where we get sideways is living out of convictions that don't proceed from faith. Peter has been told to make room for Gentile brothers and sisters. Now imagine again how this could cause someone who is kosher and has been for their whole life to stumble. But Peter in other places is free to eat those things, but around his Jews, he won't eat those things and nor will he associate with Gentiles who eat those things. Fear is dominating Peter's life in that setting. And this cuts both ways. If we know we shouldn't watch that or drink that, but when around other people we do watch that and drink that, we are not drinking or watching based on faith. We are afraid of what people might think by our abstaining. We might even be tempted to hide it. We should live out of that place with a fear and a trembling towards God and a humility of the knowledge that we have about our walks with God, but also with a conviction I, I just can't do that, and that's okay. And also with the conviction, I'm not going to judge others who do do that, and that's okay. The food is, uh, is clean, and maybe at my point in the journey, it's unclean for me. So I can't, I must abstain, because if I don't, I might overindulge. And I want to please God, and not man. So I'm going to please God. Now, let me stop here and make a note about our beloved denomination, if you don't know, we're a PCA church, Presbyterian Church in America. As an elder, I'm allowed to take exceptions to our confession of faith over things that are deemed to not strike at the vitals of our holy religion. I can take a scruple, an exception to that, which means that our faith, being practicing Presbyterians, our confession was meant to be a document that is somewhat big-tented, and allowed for ministers to take certain exceptions that don't strike at the vitals of our faith. Why? Because those things might be a matter of conscience. We also allow elders to take exceptions. But when you're a member of our church, you don't have to be subscribed to the confession here. You simply have to be a Christian. We understand liberty here in the church, and we also understand that you have freedom of conscience to certain ways. Other than being a Christian, that's what allows you to be a member of this church. Um, everything else is somewhat an open-ended item. Now, I'm going to talk more about that here in just a second because we don't want to violate conscience. Now, the question is, what, shil- what hills should we prepare, be prepared to die on and which disagreements can we happily let fly through the catcher? What we need to develop maybe is what Michael Bird calls a theological triage in relation to one, views essential to the faith, two, views important to the faith and order of a church but not necessary for salvation, and three, views that may be treated with indifference, a matter of conscience. Now for me personally, I would put in the essential category, and this is true for the church historic, things like the Trinity, The gospel, salvation by faith alone, things without which no one can be a Christian. 
In the important category, I might include things like church government and baptism, things that shape the visible operation and theological imagination and ethos of a church. But one is not a Christian if you do not agree point by point with some of those things. In the third category, I would put things like drinking alcohol, schemes of eschatology, certain Bible translations, what to watch and not watch, who to vote for. The the triage here works well if everyone agrees on what issues go into which categories. But when they don't agree on what is a major issue and a minor issue, there can be issues. The problem is that some churches deny that such a thing exists at all and are matters subject to some regulative principle. Then there are others who misuse the concept and allow what scripture expressly forbids. You see the tension, right? The tension is a church gets stuck in this place where they deny certain things because they say, this is hard and fast essential, or they say, "Uh, we're going to let everything kind of go laissez-faire, even though the scripture forbids it. There is indeed weighty matters, things to be held according to Paul of first importance because they pertain to things necessary for salvation. Jude says in his uh, epistle that we are to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. Contending for the faith does not require, however, being contentious about all the things where we become warrior children fighting for everything. Matters that are to be considered by conscience are those that may be treated with indifference as they are inconsequential. Perhaps one of the greatest lessons that this text has for us, that when it comes to secondary matters, Paul shows that it is more important to be loving than to be right. There is no gain to be made in proving your theology is superior if it means fostering division and denigrating the convictions of another believer. You might win the argument. You might impress your like-minded friends. You might gather a tribe on social media, but you will lose a brother or a sister for whom Jesus has died. And if Jesus has died for them, was crucified for them, to wash away their sins and yours, how can you seek to bring them to spiritual ruin? Now, Paul does not insist that the strong have to agree with the weak. But he does insist that they constrain the exercise of their freedom to promote love, peace, and unity. We'll talk more about that next week. For Christians in Rome, where their faith is exercised in a context of hostility and daily uncertainty, they do not have the luxury of dividing over minuscule matters about morsels of meat, since far more is at stake than steak. That's not my line. I wouldn't use a corny line like that, but I thought it was funny. And if that's true, it's certainly true for us in our day. Lastly, remember the big picture. You live in the kingdom of God. Look at verses 17 through 19. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace 
and for mutual upbuilding. Now, remember, Paul will say other places you are to eat and drink to the glory of God. So it's not that it totally doesn't matter. You are not just like spirits on sti- uh, brains and spirits on sticks. Your body matters, and what you do with your body matters. But what Paul is saying here, Paul is providing two sentences elaborating on the reasons for the perspective of treating each other with love on disputable matters. First, notice what he says. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating, drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul rarely mentions the kingdom of God. And when he does, he's ordinarily thinking about the future state that God's people are yet to enter. Here, though, Paul emphasizes the present dimension of God's kingdom. The kingdom is manifested in the midst of these believers by the Holy Spirit who bestows on them the blessings of righteousness, joy, and peace. Now, the commentator Brian Vickers says, by placing personal freedom here in the form of eating and drinking above the good of others, they are forgetting how they receive the kingdom and what should be the mark of those who belong to the kingdom. When one realizes what the kingdom is and how the kingdom is expressed among them, Paul is saying petty squabbles over meat in sacred days appear in comparison pointless and even pitiful. Second, positively, he says, because anyone who serves... Now, remember, he's not saying having those convictions as a weak brother or sister. That's not what he's saying. He's saying dividing, causing disunity is what's weak and pitiful and pointless. Second, positively, he says, because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receiving human approval. Paul suggests that adopting this mode of behavior is an act of service towards Jesus since it is in service towards his people. Remember Paul's story. He's confronted on the road to Damascus. Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Paul, when you hurt my followers, and you kill them and jail them. You aren't just hurting them. You're hurting me. We are so united to Jesus in serving their king, the king Jesus. It is a service towards his people. In serving the king, we should imbibe a kingdom perspective on how to treat other kingdom people. More to the point, this behavior will result in a twofold blessing. Those who conduct themselves in this way of love and restraint towards others will not only please God, but will also be met with human approval. They will be good servants who receive not only divine praise, but are esteemed by the rest of their church family. If the Roman believers considered themselves to be servants bound to Jesus, then they are bound to act in a certain way to promote righteousness, peace, and joy. So, Paul says, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to this peace and mutual edification. This is such a great verse. It's, how I wi- I, I, it's a verse that I wish we would read aloud at the beginning of city group meetings, diaconate meetings, session meetings, presbytery, general assembly meetings. Let us make every effort to do what leads to peace. Those are the vows you take, by the way, when you become a member and when I become a pastor here in this presbytery, that I will do whatever it takes to preserve the peace and the unity of Christ's church. 
The believers in Rome, despite their diversity, despite the complexity of the relationship between Christ-believing Jews and Gentiles over the last several years, despite personal grievances and wounds, perhaps, they are to make every effort to pursue peaceful and mutual upbuilding. The things that make for peaceful relationships, harmony, consensus, those are things they are to doggedly chase after. Instead of destroying God's work in his servants, they're to build each other up, like adding a spiral case to a beautiful, beautiful cathedral. Paul wants hostilities to cease and in its place to erect an atmosphere of love and mutual support. Friends, that's what you're invited to, to pursue the peace and the purity of the church, to make every effort, is to live out of your uh, consciences for sure, but to keep essentials, essentials, and non-essentials, non-essentials, to seek the uplifting of the church by understanding your strong brother and their Christian liberty, but not judging them and shaking your head at them, but instead looking to Christ and his kingdom and to live for their mutual edification and their building up. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would help us. Uh, like, in the reality is, like, all of us are on a spectrum here in this room. Like, we might consider ourselves strong, or we might clearly consider ourselves weak, but often when it just comes to ver- a variety of issues, we might be strong in one sense and, and weak in another. Our, our conscience might be pricked over here, but not pricked over here. And in all of that, you invite us to gather around King Jesus and his kingdom and to live uh, as kingdom people, people that have been bought and saved by the blood of Jesus. And we're reminded that as we come to the table this morning, that this one table, this one cup, this one loaf is meant to remind us of this unity that's been blood bought by Christ. And so I pray that we would, as your people, as we take and imbibe these elements, just continue to remember that, pursue that, to seek the peace and purity of the church above our opinions, and non-essential things. These are complicated and tricky, and will help us as we talk more about it even next week. But give us grace, we pray, in this endeavor. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.